0: we yeah. yeah. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast, presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and com. I'm your host, Stephen Hayden. My guest today is Pete Yorn. On Friday, Pete announced that he was putting out a new EP on June 1st with Scarlett Johansson. You might remember that Pete and Scarlett put out a record together in 2009 called Breakup. This is the follow-up to that. It's called Apart. And uh, Pete and I talked about that EP, but we talked about a lot of other things as well, because I'm a... Pretty big Pete Yorn fan. I actually reached out to Pete on Twitter a couple of months ago asking him if he could be on the podcast. I mean, normally I don't do it that way. I don't just tweet at people and, you know, hat in hand, ask them to come on. You know, I go through publicists and all that stuff, but I didn't have a contact for Pete. And I just had a feeling that he would be an approachable guy, you know, even though he has like a ton of followers, he has like, like 1.5 million followers or something like that. Uh, but I tweeted at him, I was like, I, I do this podcast, do you want to come on? And uh, sure enough, he said yes. He agreed to do it. He said, get in touch with my people, we'll arrange it. And it turned out that he actually had new music that he was putting out that he wanted to promote. So it all worked out great. Um, but I wanted to have Pete on. I wanted to do like the Mark Marin style interview with Pete, you know, talking about his entire career. And, of course, the big thing in Pete's career, the thing that he's probably most known for, uh, is his first record came out in 2001, Music for the Morning After. Huge record for me at that time. You know, when we talk about 2001, you know, the narrative has become talking about all the New York bands at that time, the Strokes, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, and you have White Stripes, of course, from Detroit. All those Meet Me in the Bathroom bands. Uh, Pete was outside of that. He was originally from New Jersey, but he was in L.A. by the time that record came out. For me, Music for the Morning After was very much as much a part of that time as Is This It or White Blood Cells or any of the other iconic rock records of that time. You know, when I think about post nine eleven era, you know, which was a very weird time, I think, for anyone uh, that was alive at that time. You know, for me, I was in bars a lot. I remember sitting in bars, watching people dig through the through the rubble, looking for survivors. You know, while I was drinking Beam and cokes, you know, getting silly. The record I remember most of from that time, the record I would listen to in the car, driving to bars, was music for the morning after. You know, just the title of that record seemed kind of prescient. You know, like a lot of the songs on that record kind of deal with the aftermath of trauma and and heartbreak. And how do you move on from that? Pete wrote really great songs articulating the dark places that you go through in those moments, and yet there was also something very uplifting about that record, very inspirational, you know, songs like Strange Condition and Life on a Chain and Nancy. They were introspective songs, but they were anthemic songs as well. Pete, I always felt like, was a unique spin on the singer-songwriter archetype because unlike a lot of his peers at that time... He wasn't a folky, he wasn't an alt-country guy. He looked like those guys, but he was playing music that was indebted to music from the 80s, like the Smiths and the Cure, and he was a big Guided by Voices fan, and there was some of that sort of handmade, lo-fi quality to some of his music as well. And yet, at the same time, he did have that sort of Springsteen-like ability to turn all those influences into like brawny, broad-based rock songs. So that record, to me, still I think holds up. One of the great records of its era. And Pete, after that, he continued to put out really good records. Day I Forgot, two thousand three, Nightcrawler, which I think is a really great record. Two thousand six. Um, a couple years ago, he put out his first record in six years, Arranging Time, because you know, he took a hiatus for a while, and that's I think one of his best records. Uh, You should definitely check that one out. It didn't get a ton of press. I know I didn't hear about it personally until several months after it came out. Uh, And yet I was very pleasantly surprised uh, by how much I liked that record. So I talked to Pete about all of this. We talked about the first record. We talked about how he got into music. And, you know, Pete was a really nice guy. (laughs) You know, he was hanging out. I think he lives in California. If you listen to this interview, it sounds like there's like seagulls in the background at some point. I think he was just kind of hanging out. I know he's a dad now, so he was probably killing some time before he was going to go pick up his daughter from school, maybe, or I don't know what it was. But he was a really good dude to talk to, and we got into it. So I think you're going to enjoy this interview with Pete Yorn. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week, and it is our old friends at SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning out a night with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will help you get closer to the action for a great value. Now, I use the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way that I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets for Counting Crows. Yes, we all know that I am a Counting Crows fan. August 4, the morning after, recovering the satellites. I think I have to do a Counting Crows podcast at some point. I, I know people have asked me to do this, to stand up for Adam Duritz. I actually want to have Adam Duritz on the podcast. That is something I'm in the process of trying to do right now. Hopefully that will happen. Anyway... For listeners of this podcast, I have a special deal. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter in the promo code CELEBRATION and you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, just enter in the promo code CELEBRATION when you get that app and you will get $20 off your first purchase. So you're going to buy tickets anyway, so why not give it a shot? That is SeatGeek. Again, promo code CELEBRATION. Get $20 off your next ticket purchase. Okay, so me and Pete Yorn, we had a great conversation. We talked last week. We talked about this new EP with Scarlett Johansson. He actually tells a really funny story about how he met Scarlett Johansson, which is kind of funny, but as well as you know, just Pete's rise to his career and uh, how he's survived. You know, A lot of people, they have success early on, and they flame out, and you never hear from them again, and yet here Pete is, almost 20 years after his first record, still putting out music. So I was curious how he got to that point, how he survived the journey, and uh, he had a lot of good things to say about it. So here is me and Pete Yorn talking on the Celebration Rock podcast. So I'm supposed to say hello from Alan Sepinwall to you.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, old-time, old-time friend. who I haven't seen him in quite some time, but I know he's an amazing uh, TV writer now.
0: Yeah. And,
1: uh, he's yeah, my- he's one of, one of the guys from my school. We were friends when we were really little. We used to put play dates and hang out, all kinds of stuff.
0: Yeah, like didn't his mom like babysit you or something?
1: Very possibly. Yeah, very very possibly. Um I know that uh that uh yeah, like I think our our moms were, were close and uh and uh yeah, just remember we used to I feel like we like keep, we used to hang out a lot when we were really little and then not so much when we were older, but uh he was always a really good guy. Good guy. So more, He was like he was one of the smartest kids in school, I remember. He was like, he might have been Victorian or something, or one of the top two in the class. He was really, sharp, really really intelligent kid.
0: So it's like, where in New Jersey are you from? I'm from
1: a small town called Montville, which is sometimes confused with Montvale. Um, Montville is in Morris County, right? Kind of right between like Booten, Parsippany, uh, about 35 minutes west of uh, the Lincoln Tunnel, you know, of New York City, if you know that area at all.
0: No, not at all. All right. Well, I know, I, I know yeah, it from so, like TV shows. Like, you know, my, my Jersey knowledge okay. is from songs it's and. Sopranos. Like, like, yeah, Sopranos and Springsteen songs. Like, it's
1: very songs. near Sopranos. It's very near Sopranosville. You know, like Caldwell was referenced. They even referenced Montville a lot in the town. Uh, and it's kind of like, you know, it's the Morris County. So it's, you know, it's like north, northeast. New Jersey.
0: And like were you playing music as a kid?
1: Yeah you know for fun like um, we had I was lucky that we had in our basement I I was the youngest of two older brothers who were one was six years older than me and one nine years older than me and so you know when they were like in high school they were selling a music and they had a drum set in the basement and they'd have friends come over and they'd plug in martial amps and be rocking out. And I'd be like, you know, six, seven years old and I would just be exposed to that and I, you know, worship those guys and I would be like, oh my god, you know, this is so cool. And so, you know, I'd I'd be able to jump behind a drum set if I wanted, and mess around and, you know, I didn't really pick up guitar until I was like 13 but drums, I think, was first and it was just, they were easy to play because you could just bang on them and I just I used to love putting on headphones and just playing the songs, and uh, that's probably where it started.
0: And I'm trying to remember, like, how old you are. So, like, like when you were 13, was that like early 90s, or would that still be 80s?
1: I—I I was born in 74, so let's do the math: 84, uh, 10, uh, 87, 13.
0: So, like, were you already listening to like The Cure and The Smiths at that time? Like, what was the music that you were listening to as a kid?
1: So early on, it was metal. I was like very into Iron Maiden and Judas Priest because that's what my brothers were into. And I guess as my oldest brother was into like, my middle brother was definitely, they were both in the metal at the same time. And I was, you know, that kind of Maiden Priest was like the two, you know, like that was everything. And, you know, and Depp too, but it was, that felt different to me even. But... um Used to love that. I remember when we first got cable TV, and finally got MTV. I would just sit in front of it, like praying for a Judas Priest video to come on. And I was probably, you know, the, let's see, this was probably eighty, eighty one, eighty two, eighty three. I was pretty little, and I was really into that. And then right when, you know, I, you know that thing where your older siblings turn you on to stuff. When my brother, when my middle brother went to college in. Uh, he graduated in 86, so probably 86, 87, right when I was turning 12, 13, is when I remember, and even when he was a senior in high school, everything shifted, and he started to introduce me to, like, The Clash and U2 and R.E.M., and then when he got back first, right away, he went to college, and he came back for his fall break that first October in 86 or 87, and he played me the Big Mouth Strikes again, and then... I remember, I remember uh, the Smith specifically, and and uh, the Cure affected me very, very strongly. I guess the biggest thing I could say is that when I was into Priest and Maiden, I loved that music, but it never occurred to me like, oh, I want to like play this music, or I want to start writing songs, or feel like this. It was just I just liked it, you know. And then when I first heard the Cure and the Smith, I was like. Oh wow! Like it's just maybe it was an age thing too. I was a little older. I was you know twelve, thirteen, going through puberty, whatever. And I was like, oh, I want to feel like this. I want to dress like this. I want to, I want to like write, maybe even write a song like this, you know? Um, and so I remember like very influential song for me was first hearing like In Between Days by The Cure. Um And I heard that, I remember that the acoustic strumming in that song, the really fast, but I never heard anything like that. And I remember just be like, oh, my God. And I remember hearing Girl Afraid by the Smith. And I never heard Rockabilly guitar like that in that setting. And I never heard anyone really sing like Morrissey. And it just, I was just, I just got it. I loved it so much. And not many kids in my school were into it at all at the time. It was like me and I feel like, you know, some girls I was friends with and a couple of arty, artier guy friends i had but um it was it felt like it was like uh you know more of a secret and then it quickly became alternative rock you know and that was like it was all it's alternative rock it was like a thing you know
0: <laughs> right now well, you so, know you know
1: you know i mean how old are you steven
0: i'm 40 so i'm a little younger okay. than you but like yeah you know, it's it's roughly the same same era and it's yeah, funny because like, but- I wrote a book a couple years ago on music rivalries, and one thing I didn't write about in that book is The Cure and The Smiths. And people will come up to me and they always ask me, like, Cure versus Smiths, if you had to pick one, like, which one would you pick? And um, for the longest time, I I, I felt like The Smiths would be, would, would get the edge for me. But, like, lately, I find myself going to The Cure, and I think maybe just because they were able to do what they did a little bit longer. Like, they just had more... Kind of great records, whereas the Smiths, it's kind of concentrated in a small amount of time, and every song is great. But you know, they didn't have as much endurance necessarily. If you had to pick one, like which one would you pick, or, or are you unable to do that?
1: To me, they're, they're just different animals in a way, um, because, and and I love these type of questions. They're so fun to like <laughs> fun, fun, Like, oh, okay. and I can't. I feel like the Smiths. What, what they do for me is kind of a. Uh, and as I got older, I see kind of all the comedy in Morrissey's lyrics and how kind of funny he is. Right. But years ago, I just, I didn't, I just felt it was like this, this beautiful melodies And it just made me feel a certain way more than anything. Even if I didn't really understand a lot of it at the time, I think it just made me feel a certain way. And I always kind of liked feeling um, this kind of sadness. But it was like a happy sad. It's hard for me to articulate. But I, I know people speak of, you know, but it, it made me, like, want to just sit in my room. And if it could even make me – Smith wouldn't make me cry. It's not that. But was just kind of feel this kind of melancholy that I enjoyed the feeling of it in a weird way. And it just seemed, you know, that's the other thing about, you know, Growing up in suburban New Jersey or wherever you are in America, these bands from England, they seemed so romantic to me at the time, too, Uh, and still kind of do, It's just from this faraway place, and people dress and look a certain way, and it just, you know, with how how much access we have to information now, everything's become so much smaller and instant, but I feel like there was a definite romance and not knowing so much about everything, and and you really had to like read a book about to find out so much. You can just go on Wikipedia like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, it's like, you had to like get in. And,
0: uh, yeah, I mean, I think I thought. Was, oh,
1: I'm sorry, back, back to your initial question. The Smith Cure is like, I think they just represent different things to me, so I wouldn't even compare them, you know? Like, uh, the Smith the Cure is way more like, even though they have their sad songs for me, it's kind of more pump up music and, and, I don't know. I just I feel like such per- different personalities to me, even though I guess the, on the surface people might see them as similar, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So, like, were you writing songs then at that age already? Like, you the Smiths and the Cure, like, were you inspired, like, okay, I want to make music like this? Were you actually kind of coming up with your own stuff?
1: I think as soon as I, le- I definitely learned guitar around 13. And I think right after that, I just started mess, trying to write songs. And I was definitely trying to write songs that sound like The Cure. I remember mean, the first song I wrote It's called The One. And it was like, the, I actually have a recording of it somewhere. The lyrics are, uh, she was, the, she was, and I even sang with the English accent. I was like, she was the princess of the underworld. Her lips were red like fire. She told me once or so I thought love with her desire. And then the years, side I was like, I write fire and desire. You can't do that. That's so lame. And, uh, but I was like, I was trying to write like a, a Robert Smith song, you know, and, uh, and then the guitar lines, in a way I'm still trying to write songs like that. But, um, but, uh, yeah, it was, just, it was, it was, it was definitely, you know, and that was the other thing too, when I was just playing drums, uh, you know, it never occurred to me, oh, to write a song. I was like, I'm just playing drums, I'm playing all this music. And then as soon as I was able to kind of make my own chords, I was like, yeah, pretty naturally it was just like, oh, you know, Write a song. I didn't really wasn't that much thought put into it. Like, oh, I'm gonna try and write now. Just like I just did it, you know.
0: And at that point, you were just doing it for fun, right? I mean, because I think I read that you ended up going to law school for a while. When, I like, well, the plan was
1: the, the plan was I didn't know what the hell I want to do, and as a default, I figured after I graduated college, uh, I would go to law school. Um, but then by the time I was actually graduating and I did graduate because I was important to my family and stuff. I remember and I, mean, I was like, I'm going to go do this and waste, you know, just so I'll finish. And, uh, I was said, well, let me, well, music had become a big pole at the time. And I was like, let me try music for a little bit and let's we'll see. And then if it doesn't work out, I could always go to law school. I, I didn't see it the other way around. I was like, I'm going to law school. This is it. I'm not going to be like 30. Like, Oh, what if, you know? So I was like, all right, I'll just, T- take a shot now, and then if it doesn't work out in a few years, well, you go to law school. So,
0: I mean, like, did you actually want to be a lawyer, or was that just something you felt like you had to do to have a regular job? Uh,
1: uh, yeah, I honestly didn't have much direction. Like, I know say, people like, get to college and they're like, "Oh, I'm going to declare my major and this and that." And I, I, I did not. I didn't really have any idea. I knew I, I didn't have the smarts to be a doctor. You know, my dad was a dentist and. He didn't want me to do that. I obviously didn't think I could pass the test to do that. So I was really bad at math and science and uh, chemistry, especially really bad at that. And then um, once I got to school, Syracuse was very cold. I don't if we talked about this at all. I'm sure I told you about this. Remember, just, it was like... The first winter there, I was like, "Oh my god!" You know, and every kid in the dorms. Every felt so like everyone was just smoking weed all day, all day. <laughs> and of course, I got wrapped up in that. And I remember waking up every morning like, "Oh my god, you cannot smoke today. You cannot, dude. You can't." Because I wasn't like a big pothead and high going on like that. I was like, "Cannot smoke again today." And, the, and of course, you know, by three hours later, we're all just fucking smoking weed. All these kids <laughs> from Long Island and and Marilyn were all there and they were just, it just seemed like they all knew each other too. Like the first week of school, we got there, it seemed like all these kids just knew each other. I was like, how the fuck do you know each other already? It was just like, everything moved really quick. But so, and, and I, I, in a way I think the weed was good for me cause I think it mellowed out my brain and opened some things up for me because all I know is I just started writing song after song after song. Um, and, uh, it kind of changed, changed me a little bit. And of course, you know, being away from home for the first time going to change anybody, but I feel like it uh, opened something up in me that that uh, that just made me just, just write and write and write. And so when it came time, like, well, what do I want to do? I remember thinking, like, you know, at that point, the music was just fun. It was just something I liked to do. It was never, like, yeah, you know, I'm going to fucking become a professional musician. Like, I didn't have any... Like, I was kind of a realist, you know, and I was like, um, didn't really think that would ever occur. Um, and so I think I settled on a major called speech communication because I thought the one thing about being a lawyer that I thought was interesting, I think I had watched To Kill a Mockingbird and I just liked the courtroom stuff. I liked the, 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 you know, the arguing and the, and the kind of defending someone, all that sort of stuff. And so. I kind of was like, oh, maybe I'll focus on that aspect of it, you know? And so I figured that was the one thing about if I was going to become a lawyer that kind of excited me. I I thought that was romantic, you know?
0: Hey, guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes out May 8th, and it's available for pre-order right now from wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, and The Stones, even though it's been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long, and what is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to the music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? My book covers all these things as well as well, a lot of other cool stuff about artists like Neil Young, Bob Seeger, Bruce Springsteen, Paul McCartney, Black Sabbath, ACDC. Uh, there's a little bit about Ario Speedwagon in there. Uh, there's a Fish chapter in there. There's Pearl Jam. There's Wilco. Ah man, there's like a million bands covered in this book. So if you like this podcast, you're gonna like the book. Just go to wherever you buy books. And punch in Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes out May 8th. Pre-order it now. Okay. Enough shilling. Let's get back to our conversation.
1: I think by senior year, I knew I was going to try music after, even though I finished. I was going to try it first.
0: Now, like, at that point, had you written any of the songs that ended up on your first record?
1: No, that's a, that's a good question. I think I have answers to that. <laughs> You know, I found something. Um, we were clearing out some old storage spaces, and I found some of you know, these old books I kept of lyrics and this one little, like, um, acoustic thing. Like, it was like a kid who was like a film major at school, and he wanted to, he asked me if he could just film me playing some songs for a project. And I said, yeah, and I had written out the set list. And uh, I found the set list of that, and there were songs not from the first record, but that had come out since, like um, Vampire Mm. uh, was written probably was back then. In fact, I remember writing it when I still lived in my house in New Jersey at my father's desk in his little study. Oh,
0: wow. I sat
1: at his desk and wrote it, which I never did for any other song. And then... And there were about three songs on that set list. I think I posted it on Instagram or something, too. I have to find it. But um, All At Once, I think, as well, which was on Day I Forgot. Um, and Velcro Shoes was written back then, a long time ago, which was on the record, the Black record, the P.Y. record. Oh,
0: wow. Um, but
1: but as far as the, for the first record, those songs kind of all came in a burst. Uh At once, um, except for Simon Eyes. Simon Eyes was older, too. Um, That was probably written in college, you know? Uh, And it was actually recorded a different time, too. All the other songs were recorded at the same time. But, yeah, all those other songs kind of came in a burst of uh, creativity that just hit me. And they were written probably over, like, a nine-month period.
0: Like when you were already in Los Angeles? Yeah, definitely. Did you have a record deal at that point? I didn't get
1: a record deal until July of 1999, and it was my birthday, I think, too. When we got like the word, like, "Okay, it's happening," or like we had new, we was with, like the handshake deal, but then like on my birthday, I remember we got, like, the call, like, okay, the paperwork's done, or it's coming, and I was like, holy shit, and I remember <laughs> at that time, you know, getting a record deal, it was like, it was, like oh my god, it was a dream come true. Uh, still, still, it gets me emotional on certain days, because it was just, you know, it was just a good kid to dream, I remember, well, and, you know, now you can get your music out any which way, but that back then, it was like, just before all that, and uh, I remember it took I moved out in, July, in in May of of uh, 1996, and July 99, we were signed to Columbia. And I remember rationalizing it because you know I was like three months in, I was like, "Oh fuck, this is never gonna happen." I'm like, <laughs> "I'm gonna quit." I don't know. And I had friends who said, "You know, P, fuck you. You gotta try, keep going, whatever." And, and we tried for a few years. And we had fun. It was it was it was fun trying, but it was frustrating at times. But um, Definitely, it was, it was a fun time. But I remember in my head thinking, like, all right, all right, settle down. If you were in law school, it would take three years before you could be practicing law. If you could even pass the bar, that should be in law school for three years. So I remember, like, okay, after each year would go by, I'm like, all right, you're second year of law school now. Now you're third year. And then I remember if it didn't happen soon after that, I was probably going to jump shit. <laughs> so it happened at the right time, I guess.
0: So like was there a particular song then that that got you signed? Like was a strange condition or like Life on a Chain? Like like how did you end up I think that it deal? was
1: chain. I think it was Life on a Chain. And no, this is a funny. Um, this was uh this basically what happened was with Columbia anyway, there's some others there's stories with other labels that were it didn't really work out, but for whatever reason. But with Columbia Um, I had the opportunity to go into Donnie Einer's office in New York city, uh, with my acoustic guitar and he lights up a cigarette, He sits in the chair. He's like, all right, kid, just like total old school. He was great. He's like, he's like, all right, play me what you got, what do you got, what do you got? And at the time I had, uh, I had a few songs, but I had, I played him just another and I played him Murray just on my guitar. And, uh, he said, because uh, I wasn't out playing shows. I had stopped playing shows at some point. I think I'd been playing at Largo a lot and everything, and that was cool. And then I was just, for some reason, I I would never l- loved performing. I was very self-conscious and it was stressing me out. And I just um, kind of was like, you know what? I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to try and make the greatest record I can make. Um, and that's going that's what's going to do it for me. And so to backtrack a sec, the record was pretty much almost finished before I was even signed to Columbia, that we had already started. We were, like, halfway done with it already. Um, but so I played him just another, I played Murray, and he says, all right, cool, all right, we'll be in touch. And that was it. And I remember, like, I had my, I don't know if I had my hopes up or what well, but I was like, wow, fuck, all right, that's it, all right, nothing's happening. And then we go back out in California, and a couple of weeks go by, I don't hear nothing. And then we get a call that he's sending this guy, his Top A&R man at the time, Will Botwin, who I just ran into yesterday, leaving Capitol Records. It's such a coincidence. He was going in with the band. He's a manager now. And I was walking, he's like, Pete. I was like, oh, my God, dude. Like, I like live for this guy. And uh, it's so cool to see him. Um, and now we're talking about him. But he was in California, came to the house, and the day before, and this is I think this is what put it over the top, the day before I feel like Donnie had told him, like, "You go see this kid Pete. If you like what he's doing, then you could sign him." You know? And so Will came to see me the day before I had written "Life in the Chain." There's this producer in LA who lived around the corner from me named Tony Berg, and he was kind of mentoring me a little bit. And the day the day before, he just he, he always like he's such a museo. He you knows like all these weird chords on guitar that I would never know, and he showed me this funny chord on the guitar, which is this one right here. I He played me this chord. He goes, <laughs> "Tell me if you can hear it." He goes, "He goes." <laughs> yeah. we'll go home and write a song with that with that chord. You heard that? Yeah. And I said, "Oh, okay." So I was like, I go home and I'm like, and it just came pouring out of me, "Life on a Chain." And so Will Botwin, as timing would have it, comes over the next day and he's like, "You got anything new or other?" And I was like, well, I just wrote this one, and I play him "Life in a Chain," like literally two feet in front of his face, and he smiles big, and he's like, and, and as I remember, maybe I played him a couple but I don't remember, but I just that really stands out, and I, he he looked me smile, he said, he's like, all right, let's do this, let's do this, let's do something. Like what do you mean? He's like, yeah, let's, let's make a row let's, let's do this. We're gonna sign you, and I was like, holy shit! <laughs> it was like it was like a fairy tale moment. It was really cool. It like you couldn't make it. You know, it sounds like something from a like a story here or a movie here, but that's what it was. We were we were really excited.
0: So, I remember the first time I heard your music, and I think this is true of the first record, and I think all of your records really is that. To me, what was really original about it is that like with a lot of singer songwriters, you know that there's this idea of them kind of coming from like a folk tradition or that, you know, there's, there's sort of like a set way that singer songwriters are are supposed to sound. And like with, with your record, there really wasn't any of that. It was more that you were coming at it from, you know, that sort of eighties alternative background. I know you're a big guided by voices guy. So there was like a home recording element to it. I mean, like life on a chain to me, it's like, it's kind of a Bruce Springsteen sounding song, but then there's like a new order element to it. You know, there's that new order sounding bass in there. Um, it just seemed like there were a lot of different reference points that went beyond i guess the sort of traditional heartland rock singer songwriter guy i mean did you feel like you were doing something different in that regard
1: um i remember very very clearly actually that i remember i had a lot of like we i remember at the time yeah i was so into Guided by voices that was, was really opened up a lot of you know Have new avenues for me of what I was into, and um, I feel like that was like my next big love, like my real big music love after The Smiths and The Cure and Britpop and and REM is like, oh now guided by voices like kind of filled that next thing for me. I feel in my next phase of life, you know, Um, but yeah, like I had friends. We were into Sunvolt, too, and and probably Wilco. I think they were around at that point, like. I was really in a teenage fan club, and I guess I, was, I remember thinking, like, "There's, I love all these bands, but, like, I feel like it needs something else to really pop through. Like, I don't want to just make, like, a straight all-country record, you know? Um, and so there were all these other elements I loved, and when I first started working with Walt Vincent, I remember he was into this stuff, too. We were into New Order, and we were into drum machines, and we were into ticky-ticky-ticky-ticky, you know, sounds and synths. And I was like, well, what if we kind of, like, you know just kind of like, I remember, too, an influential record was Garbage, I think, was around, and they were doing, like, kind of very British-sounding rock, but there was a lot of drum machines and uh, uh, in a cool way, you know, um, that I related to, and I just remember uh, thinking that we should introduce some of those elements into what we're doing, and so this like, creaky, indie, acoustic, you know, singer-songwriter stuff mixed with all these Brit-pop loves that we have, and 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 and, and drum machines, and and it just kind of threw it all in there. And so, yeah, it was definitely, you know, it was what we love, but it was also, there was also a conscious thing of, like, like, yeah, like, I don't like I don't want to just make a straight, like, singer-songwriter record. I want to make a rock and roll record that feels, that celebrates everything I love, not just this one little corner of what I love. And, and there was also the idea that maybe that would, maybe even get it to a wider, a wider audience, but you never know, you know?
0: Right. Yeah, what's interesting about you too is that like you, you know, your record comes out, your first record comes out in 2001 and that's also around the same time that a lot of those bands from New York were coming out, like Strokes and Interpol and there was like a real kind of return to rock music at that time. Um, And like for me, like your first record, your first couple records really kind of fit in with that. Like to me, I actually had to look up when music for the morning after came out, it came out in March of 01. Cause I always think of that as like a post nine 11 record. Like it was a big nine 11 record for me. I listened to it a lot at that time. I also went through like the first really bad breakup of my life around that time. So the record is tied up in that. And I think just the title of the record made me, it felt kind of like appropriate cause like music for the morning after it seemed very apt. It seemed like a very morning after type period for a lot of people. I think at that time, but, like, I mean, did you feel any kinship with, like, some of the other things that were happening at that point in, in rock music?
1: If I felt any... Well, definitely, you know, this record was made... Yeah, I think it was done, mixed, mastered in the can by late 99, maybe early 2000. Um, and I just took a beat for it to come out, so... But, yeah, I do hear, you know, a lot of people tell me it was like it was like a big breakup record for them when they were going through And a lot of people tell me it was a big fall in love and people got married to this record, too. So, I, it was more, I don't know, I guess, a, you know, whatever people are going through in their life, I guess what's going to be for them. But um, as far as a kinship with the other bands... Uh, you know if I heard stuff i liked i was, I was just like the fan or I liked it for sure, you know, like um i remember i remember uh, when the strokes came out, I think we played a show with them in, in Toronto, and uh, I was like, yeah, these guys are cool, they're great, you know, love that love that been um but I just
0: uh i don't know
1: I, I if I heard something I liked, I guess I felt a appreciation for it you know i'm not sure i'm I'm not sure what if that's a question you were asking or not i'm sorry
0: oh no no i I just you know because i was just gonna say that like because you seem outside of that kind of stuff that was happening and yet at the same time you also seem a part of it. at least in my mind i think just because i was listening to all those records at the same time and um you know, we, you were different from that but you also there were some similar reference points at the same time. But it was like it was sort of like you were like kind of like a West Coast version of what was going on there, even though you're from Jersey, but like there was maybe like a California ness a little bit to your record. In contrast to the New Yorkness of those of that music.
1: Yeah, but you know, maybe. I know <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of, <laughs> it's gotta be a lot of similar reference points. You know, people are Into the Velvet Underground, New Order, uh, Pixies, and The Cure and the Smiths, you know, something's going to come out. And and Springsteen. I I definitely feel like I was, I was, I I loved Springsteen, uh, but I didn't, it's weird, I never thought of myself as sounding like Springsteen or being an artist like Springsteen. And then all the comparisons came out. I think cause it's from New Jersey, maybe. Right. And it was just e- it was just easy.
0: And like having but a I deeper like voice, like, probably like yeah, dark hair guy from Jersey that has a deeper voice. That's probably as much that's as much as people need to make a comparison.
1: Yeah, I yeah. I mean, I love I love Bruce. I just, lyrically, I feel like he's like he tells these very specific stories and imagery uh, in such a wonderful way. And I, I always felt like I was much more of a like i just kind of give i give like uh i give kind of hints of what i'm talking about I, or at least that's the way i see it i'm i'm i'm, I'm much more of uh a vague sort of storyteller because I like to keep things open-ended in a way and let people kind of fill in the blanks where you kind of really paint a full picture. So that's why I was, I guess on that level, I just saw, it, but it I didn't see the comparison.
0: All right, guys, we're going to get back to this conversation here in a minute. I just want to tell you about another sponsor for today's episode, and that is our friends at Blind Tiger Record Club. Now, what is Blind Tiger Record Club? It is a final record subscription box service delivered to your door each month. You pick from all kinds of different styles like alternative, singer, songwriter, rock, jazz, soul, blues, whatever you like, and they mail your record selection out at the end of each month. All the vinyl is new, all the 12-inch records are new, some are double albums, they're heavyweight, and some of them are even hard to find in port records. The best part of it is the service. Their selections are announced prior to shipping, giving customers the option to choose which album they want each month. Now, subscriptions to the Blind Tiger Record Club start at $25.99. But for listeners of this podcast, we have a special deal. You use the code CELEBRATION at the checkout to receive 50% off your first subscription box. The minimum subscription is three months, so the first box is half off. Then the following two will be the full price at $25.99. So again, subscribers get member pricing and free shipping on items added to their monthly box. Again, that's the Blind Tiger Record Club, your vinyl, your choice. All right, now let's get back to the podcast. What's what's fascinating about you is that like you, you're signed to like Columbia Records like at the beginning of your career. So you're on this big label and, you know, the first record comes out and it's successful. But, you know, there's a lot of stories about bands having success early on and then they they get chewed up and like they break up or they don't make another record or they make two or three records and then they're done. And you've had this long career and you've lot of, done a lot of different things. And I'm wondering like, how do you survive that? You know, starting in your mid twenties, and now you're, you know, in, in your forties, and you're still making records. Um, was that a hard road to hoe? How did you make it through all that?
1: Um, you know, first I think I'm lucky that that I've always kind of had an instinct to pat, surround myself with good people um, in my personal life. Um, and I've been really lucky that, you know, I have a family that, that uh, you know, kind of supports me. And you know, I could always turn to them when I'm lost or, you know, uh, um, I remember even with the band, though, it was like we're going to tour band. I was like, ah, I never got like the whole stars in my eyes of like, you know, like oh, we're going to get these, you know, Hollywood scene and this band and then all these slick guys. Like, I always just wanted, like, my friends in the band. it was, like, uh, just kind of the way I was and still am. And so I just kind of want to just keep tight people around me. No bullshit. I wasn't really looking for any drama and stuff like that. So that's one thing, I think, that starts there, you know. Um, Another thing is keeping your inspiration going. You know, there are times where you think, oh, I could just write songs like I did in college every day, two songs a day just keep coming and coming and then you go through periods where you just don't feel like writing anything and people ask you oh, let's make another record make some more music You're like I don't feel like say I got nothing to say right now you know and some people worry about that but I never worry about that period because I know that everything flows in and out you know um, and uh, I also just think I had that gene of like the survival gene a, as far as you know, when you tour, we toured a lot, and we definitely had fun. But I, there was something in me that kind of shut me down if it was getting too far. It was like if, it was, if I was riding off the rails too far or it could be a danger to myself or something like that, I feel like there was this unconscious part of my brain that would just say, okay, I'm going to shut you down now. You're done. He's gonna, <laughs> it's going to give me something that will make me, that will scare me and make me kind of want to pull it back in and get
0: myself straight um i mean did you have that recently i mean because i you know because like in, in 16 you put out ranging time which by the way that's one of my favorite records of yours i love that record um thanks man. and and you have uh, this ep with scarlet coming out that was just announced or it, it will have just been announced by the time this post uh bad dreams um but like you know, there was like a six-year gap between albums for you. Like, did you kind of say, was that a point where you were like, I'm not sure. I feel like writing right now. Like, was that an unplugging point for you?
1: I think what it was, and I talked about it a lot during that arranging time, you know, press cycle. Um, I'm pretty sure it was. You know, I went pretty hard and put out a lot of music. You know, for me anyway, in a, in a sh- not too long a period of time. Even was at one point where I put out three records in a year. I remember with the breakup and and the black album and back and forth, and I was just kind of putting a lot of stuff out. And at that, at one point after that, that I realized that I was, I was really, part of me was really um, longing for some uh, more more growth in my personal life.
0: Yeah. I was
1: still living on my brother's like guest room. I didn't have my own place. I was just like, I would just go on the road and come back. I didn't have any really strong... um, uh, I wanted like, you know, I started worrying about like, oh man, maybe I want to have like a wife and a kid. And then I, I knew there was part of me that was really scared of that. And so I think that that became something that I wanted to overcome. And so I just kind of put a lot of energy into my personal life. And I think doing that just made just kind of time went by really fast. And I was not focused on on my career as much in that kind of burning intense way that I was because I was putting all that burning intense energy into like getting myself into a good place and getting through my thirties and into this next phase of my life where I could like grow up a little bit, I think in some places where I needed to. Um, So that's what I think that's what it was for sure. You know?
0: And you have, a and ba- then once
1: I got that together, and I was like, "All right,
0: oration time, let's go." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you have a baby now, right?
1: Yeah, she's two and a half. And oh
0: wow. That's another thing. I put, I put a lot
1: of energy into her, which is great. Where I think normally I would put into writing songs. And the weirdest thing happened was like maybe like about a month and a half ago. I was sitting with my middle brother, my brother Rick, and we were having lunch at this little countertop place, and he's like like, dude, you make some more music. I don't know. And, you know, he was like the first person I always send my music to. Like whenever I do a song, you know, he's the one who told me how to play drums. We just, he's the one who got me into the sure We just had that connection, you know. And he's like, you gotta make some more music. And I literally said to him, like, I don't know. It's not feeling you know, nothing new. Just like, just kind of focus on Little B and, and uh, just, I don't know. I'm some energy there. I don't have the energy to to write it. I don't know. And then literally, like, three days later, I got a call from this kid who has a studio out in Echo Park, and uh, we had met at a birthday party like four months earlier, and for- I totally forgot about it, and he just circled back. He's like, oh, I got my studio set up. You should come by and try something. I was like, all right, what the heck, I'll go by. And we just hit it off, and all of a sudden we're 12 songs deep already. He even records a bunch of new feels really good so far and i think i'll we'll probably have a new record ready to go very soon actually out of nowhere when i thought it was not going to happen
0: oh that's fabulous well let's talk a little yeah. bit about bad dreams here like how did this come about i mean this is the second record you've made with scarlet first record you know you, you talked about breakup i guess that came out was that 09 like 09, 10, yeah,
1: We 10 rec- we recorded it in 06 and it came out in 09 oh wow and um it took a minute to close. we recorded it and we were like, uh I don't know, I don't know like what I don't even know what we're gonna do with this. I just I, I we recorded like right when I had just put out Nightcrawler. I just like this like moment in time where I had felt very restless I was like, We gotta do something, I just gotta do something and then by the time we figured out what to do with it or if we even liked it and it was like, Okay. You know, it could be fun, so but um yeah, I this is another funny thing, is like it wasn't on my radar to do do something else with Scarlett at this point in time. And, um, again, I think my brother was like, it's like, dude, you I think there's a song called Tomorrow on uh, on, on arranging time. And uh, it's a song that we love. And it's like, it was a song that I, I would have loved to have been a single, I remember, but we just didn't get to it. And, and I remember he was just like driving his car when they he called me, he's like, She's like, dude, get Scarlett, get, get get her to get her to sing uh, on tomorrow. It'd be a great duet. Listening, when I and I was like, you're right. It'd be awesome, you know. <laughs> like, a, just trade verses. So, you know, she I I hit her up, and she was actually around and up for it. And so, from that, just getting back in the studio, like, I feel like you gotta just meet stuff halfway sometimes. It's like, just like getting together. I hadn't seen her in a while. We got together, and we got in the studio, and. We sang that song, uh, which is the last song on the e p and um it was just really fun, and from that, it was the catalyst of like, "Oh, yeah, I see this, we can do this song, and we can do this song, and let's grab this song, and let's just let's let's, let's do this and then it just kind of came together really quick again where 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 like a few days before, I just wasn't thinking about it at all uh um, it's just weird how that always happens with me. It, ha- it happens a lot like that for me.
0: Yeah, uh, I was going to say your brother's like your A&R guy.
1: He's my bro's the best. I mean, <laughs> he's he's always been an inspiring cat for me. And so, Like I said, all the way back from teaching me how to play drums when I was nine, you know, and bringing me, you know, big mouth strikes again, like, check this out, dude. It's like, yeah. you know, they talk about, you know, you know, yeah, both, both my brothers were the best. I was always like, just like, uh, just uh, I'll go, I'll go all the way, just saying how much I I always worshipped those guys when I was little, too young to even understand why, but yeah. they was just the best. All
0: How did you meet Scarlett?
1: At Scarlett, at a club. She was very young, probably too young to be in the club <laughs> in, in New York, and she looked like she was with some kid who was like. You know, like like Fab from The Strokes or something like that. But I don't think it was just some kid who kind of looked like that, you know. <laughs> and uh, she came up to me. She had been, she had worked with my older brother as her lawyer for, since she was little. And I had never met her. And I, my first record had already come out. And I was kind of out some people, you know, I was starting to get known a little bit. And she came up to me. She's like, yeah, Petey, right? And I was like, yeah, and like your New York accent. And she's like, I'm scared of it, you know, and I was like, <laughs> like, Hey, what's up? That's how I probably remember it. And that's how, that was the first time we met. I don't know how old she was. She might have been like fourteen or something, like that. Well no, in two thousand and one, I don't know. However she would have been old in two thousand one I guess. Okay. Um but um yeah, we just she was just always easy to talk to and you know I was always kinda uh more shy around uh, girls and stuff like that, but I remember Scarlett was just uh, just easy to talk to, and she was cool. You know?
0: And uh, and I like I read that like when you made the first record, you asked her to do a duets record before knowing that she could even sing. It was sort of an instinct that it would work.
1: Yeah, it was. I was, I was, I was like thinking back, I was like, wow, what the fuck? But sometimes <laughs> you think too much, you know. Um, I remember, the, the initial idea I had was. I was having like a weird insomnia thing. I was having it's like 2006, uh, I remember, and Nightcrawler had just come out, and I, 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 I that was one of those moments. I was telling you where like I have that gene that pulls me back. Like, like I, I think at that moment I had been pulled back, and I was kind of freaking out a little bit, but I was I was trying to like. Uh, Clean up my act a little bit. I'd gone a little too far out on the road and all that. Too much, too much. I put too much stress on myself. I and, um, uh, somehow that I wasn't sleeping and I was stressing myself out more. I, I remember I just woke up after falling asleep for like only five minutes. And I was like, I got to make a record like, like Surgeon Bridget. Like, you know, not sound like that. But I, I remember just thinking like, who could be, who's a Bridget? Like a, like a, like a movie starlet, you know, um, that kind of persona and, I just Scarlet popped into my head. The funny thing is, I remember too. The, I had also heard um, the other actress sing recently. The, uh, I think at the time that movie Elf had come out, maybe not too long before.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Zoe, and Zoe, Zoe, and Zoe sang, and I remember thinking she had a beautiful voice, but I didn't know her. And I'm like, I know Scarlet. And she's great. She's like a Bridget Bardot, of course. I'm like, (laughs) and, and, you know, she was my buddy. I haven't talked, I didn't talk to her a lot, but, you know, I had her phone number. So I texted her and she hit me back and she, I said, Hey, I think I just said, Hey, you want to make a record or I got, I got an idea. And she was like, sure. she was in a place in her life, I think, where it was, you know, not too hard for her to come and do that. Uh, And so it Uh really was really, that's kind of simple, you know?
0: Well, that's great, and you have another record possibly in the can here. That's awesome. Got about a dozen songs. Hopefully, those will come out soon.
1: Yeah, that came out of nowhere. So I'd like to, like to hopefully at least drop a song or two from that. You know, but maybe in the fall or
0: something. Yeah. Well, that sounds great, and you got to keep talking to your brother. It sounds like he's the guy that's directing your career right now. So uh, he's got to keep encouraging you to make make new records. He's
1: he's. Just Golly, yeah, he always put you and I'm like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to. It. It's like he gets in my head. I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Pete, um, I'm a big fan. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you, man. I really appreciate you uh, making some time.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. I love your uh, your tweets and stuff. And I, like, like, uh, you're, you're, you're you're entertaining. You're quite entertaining, and uh, and, uh, and I also like that you know Alan said more. Please definitely tell him I say
0: hey. I, I will. remember. I remember. I will. I will definitely do that, Pete. Take care, man. We'll talk to you later.
1: All right. Take care.
0: All right. That was me and Pete talking about music for the morning after. Skylar Johansson, lots of other things. He's a really good dude. I really appreciate him coming on the pod. Uh, that was great. Uh, guys, thank you so much again for listening uh, to the episode this week. Got to give a shout-out to my man Derek Madden for being the producer. Thank you, Derek. I got to give a shout-out to Josh Copperman for writing our theme song. Thank you, Josh. And thank you all for listening and for supporting the podcast, leaving reviews on iTunes, telling your friends about us. All these things help us grow, help us stay here. You know, this is our 101st episode. We had our 100th episode last week. Now we've rebooted. We've started on the next 100. I'm excited. I'm energized. I'm ready to keep going. So thanks again for listening, and uh, we will talk to you again next week.
1: On the Westwood One Podcast Network. (laughs)